This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore what the Great Commission looks like in the 21st century with our guests, Chris Stackrick and Kevin Singer, the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, a website and podcast that equips evangelical Christians to love all of their neighbors, no matter their religion. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Kevin Singer and Chris Stackerick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, which is an organization based in North Carolina that hosts a podcast and runs a website and creates on-campus programs that work to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. They recently launched a fellowship program that helps evangelical students combat Islamophobia in their communities. You can find out more about their work at their website, neighborlyfaith.org. Chris Stackerick and Kevin Singer, welcome to Things Not Seen. Wow, thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. So how long have you been producing this this show, Neighborly Faith? We started working on our first series, which was, uh, we called it Winter Series, uh, last summer. And for about a year and a half, we just existed as a, as a website, kind of boring. We didn't know where to go with it exactly. We didn't know how yeah. to build a platform. And so finally, I joined Twitter one day and I said, people are listening to podcasts. We got to start a podcast. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, by the seat of our pants, we just started emailing some friends that we had made in uh, mostly higher education. We decided to focus there first because it seems like that's where something is brewing. And yeah, so that was released in January 2018, and we've been at it ever since. We're trying to release an episode more or less every week that features, again, different uh, potential role models that evangelicals could aspire to be like. We are sensitive to making sure that People we interview do, in fact, hold orthodox evangelical commitments. Um, We do want our listeners to feel that this is a realistic path that they can go down without having to give up, of course, which is their greatest fear, entering into a a space, especially of religious diversity or pertaining to religious diversity, is that, well, I'm going to have to give up just about everything that I I know. But we're saying, nope, bring it all. Bring it all. Bring it all. Yeah, Um, you can keep all of it. Let's just tweak a few little things. Yep. 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 We're going to do some tweaking. But the best part is you're going to walk away from interactions with people of other faiths with a clear conscience, and you won't have to say something like, well, I did my duty as a Christian no matter what I just – no matter the harm I may have just done. Yeah. So for listeners who who want to know about this, just give us like three, four sentences about what Neighborly Faith is trying to do. Uh, We revolve around the question that we pose to evangelicals, which is – how can evangelical Christians be known as the most loving and hospitable members of their society? And the reason we ask that question is because we know it will resonate with people who ask that question, but haven't really thought about all the members of their society. They'll think about people of no faith oftentimes. That's usually yes. the only other out there. There's Christians, they'll call, we'll say. And then there's people who are atheists. And, you know, we have 
all sorts of great, we want to love them and we want to gently deliver. The, there's these great strategies that have a lot to do with love sort of mixed in. But then when it comes to people of other religions, we sort of reapply those strategies for loving, which frankly aren't loving, they're not received as such. And what we're trying to do is say, the world has changed. We have to change too. So what we do is we provide resources. Right now it's mostly in the form of a podcast and curriculum that um, discuss the tensions around being an evangelical and engaging well with people of other faiths. It's an area of tension we find. And we, we aren't delivering from above the greatest answers, but we are interviewing people that have some answers and some experience with this that are mainline conservative evangelicals that people can resonate with and oftentimes follow. As they, so if they have a Muslim neighbor moving next door and they think, I don't know what to do, we say, oh, you should follow one of the 15 people that we interview that has a Muslim neighbor next door. We have a tradition now for interreligious engagement. Out of nowhere, poof, that is what neighborly faith is. It is writing the interfaith tradition for evangelicals. A lot of people have grown accustomed to evangelical resources on this topic that are boiled down to like three best practices. Mm. We're more about changing evangelicals as people, like we want them to become the kind of people that are good neighbors to people of other faiths, not here are four things that you can do. And let's be honest. Guaranteed outcome. Right, right. Let's try to control or manufacture an outcome. We're interested in changing who they are such that what it means to be Mm -hmm. a faithful evangelical is deeply tied up with having a loving and hospitable yeah. multi-faith witness. The moment for soul work. That's what we're most excited about, Ken yeah. and I. It's like, we didn't wake up one day and say, we really care about other religions. But our engagement with people of other religions really challenged our faith and our, I'd say our souls to say, are we really hospitable? And then we start asking, am I hospitable to people, some people of no religion? Am I hospitable to my neighbors? Do I even know my neighbors? Those sorts of really obvious questions start to emerge when you start to examine the way that you try to fail to maybe succeed at loving others. And so as you guys are about this project and doing this, what have been some of the responses to the podcast? And in, let's start with the positive ones that I also want to hear about some of the negative ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> positive has been individual people saying, this was new to me. <laughs> this was groundbreaking to me. Mm-hmm. I have never thought about this. Yeah. Yeah. Or people saying... There have been a lot of people that say, I've thought a little bit about a little bit about this, and I can plug it right in. And I'm interested. And yeah. you know, you you flipped the coin for me. I'm I'm gonna think about this. And that's kinda enough for us. Yeah. We're like, all right, great. Like you are gonna like live out the love of Christ in a meaningful way, and you're gonna not just keep doing whatever you would have done, which is probably nothing. Among the people most interested in what we're doing, we have found curiously is Catholics mainline Protestants, and people of other faiths. And that, and the third one stands out to us a lot, the people of other faiths, because a lot of people will come up to us who are Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Buddhists, anything, no faith, and they'll say, oh, I've been waiting for you. I have had this scarring experience with, you know, a, a Christians, and I just wished you existed, and, and please, God bless you and your work. And frankly, uh, some of the people that have really invested in us, given us time, given us resources, have been people of other religions because they see the value. And I tell this to evangelicals all the time because I'm like, this is a wake-up call. If other religions see the value in us, that means there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And we're on to something. Yeah. 
Yeah. Some people think what we're doing amounts to evangelical voyeurism. We're creating this beautiful land where we can convince, if not deceive others, that, again, if we just put our pants on straight and keep a smile on our face, there's nothing that can hold us down. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of rah-rahing each other on, and we're romanticizing the reality that we're up against a gigantic current coming the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what I mean by voyeurism? It's it's sort of we're not being totally transparent. We are in it as as a personal interest. You're tourists. Of, of making tourists. we're trying to make our tradition Having look some good. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, you know, working on yeah. the PR, tweaking the story. Yes. Yes. You know. The second uh critique has been you are bucketing water out of a sinking ship. And there's a hole yeah. in the ship that you can't fix, and that is evangelicals' desire to convert. And yeah. as long as evangelicals have evangelism and great commissioning near the center of what it means to be faithful, this is futile. This whole thing that we're doing is yeah. futile. I mean, we had um, – uh, we talk about this a lot, but we had one executive director of an interfaith organization make that uh, incredibly clear one time. I asked him if oh, he'd yeah. be willing to speak on our podcast. I thought he might actually be an evangelical. And what happened as a result was a tirade of messages on Twitter. He even wanted to debate me publicly. <laughs> and nothing <laughs> I said or did. Doing. Yeah, just simply just on, on the, the premise. premise. Evangelicalism needs to disappear, and until then, I am only going to be a critic was sort of the attitude. Yeah, we call him our one troll. Our favorite troll. Yeah. So, Very quotable. Yeah, our favorite troll. Uh, but anyway, that was his his critique was what you're doing is of, of no value because mm-hmm. no matter what you do, there will be sort of a, a return to Billy Graham proclamation style, not one of uh, a social ethic of hospitality, a social ethic yeah. of love, a social ethic of neighborliness like the Good Samaritan mm-hmm. where, you know, gives him the – above and beyond, despite the religious differences. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think there's got to be a part of us that believes that evangelicalism can change and that the young evangelical movement is capable of taking on new directions and passions yeah. that could align very much with what we're trying to do. Absolutely. I think there's also a response we often have is that when people will say, you need to get rid of proselytism altogether, there's a fundamental issue there. Is I will often say, you're not thinking big enough. We're thinking quite largely about evangelicalism, about proselytism, about how religion works. Oftentimes people who are in like interfaith or communities, they think, oh, everyone who proselytizes, all that religion is dying off, sort of like a secularization thesis debunked, which is most of the world's religious people are quite conservative in their religion around the world. The fastest growing wings of Christianity, at least from the data I'm reading, our proselytizing makes a lot of sense. They're, they're, we are going to be around, whether we're called evangelicals or not, people that proselytize. It's important, with that being the reality, the way that the world will work, is that religious people around the world will act this way, is that we sharpen that to make sure that it is non-aggressive, to make sure that it is equitable, to make sure that the exchange in the world of the market of religions is fair. It is in a sense, we're making a world trade organization and the ideas of how religions exchange. And that's kind of what we're aiming for here with evangelicals is to kind of take the terrorists off, you know, make sure no one's hurting each other. Make sure this is a positive, beautiful exchange of giving of the gospel and receiving from others what they find beautiful in their faith. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kevin Singer and Chris Stackrick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Kevin Singer and Chris Stackrick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, an organization based in North Carolina that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. They have a website as well as a podcast at neighborlyfaith.org. That's neighborlyfaith.org. Where did Neighborly Faith come from and what is it trying to do? Yeah. Neighborly Faith came from, to be honest, our experiences engaging with people of other religions as evangelical Christians who um, in many ways are quite conservative in our belief. We just didn't feel we had the resources to engage well with people of other religions other than to tell them all about how great our faith is and how they should follow Jesus, which oftentimes we would find did not go well, so we stopped doing that, and then we found we had nothing to say. And so we don't see ourselves as unique, frankly. And and people of other religions are more and more common in our society around the world. And and we sort of, I think we wandered into a really big problem that no one's solving, which is that evangelicals don't think very carefully about interreligious engagement. We're only used to thinking about others as those we need to evangelize. And frankly, people of other religions don't, they don't take well to that. It's sort of like saying like, your mom is awful. Y'all got to come hang out. Y'all, y'all got to come get adopted by my mama, which is not like, that's not at all an intellectual thing. That's like, are you just trying to offend someone? Mm. Like, what? Wow. Like, there's so much we do that is just like not at all appropriate. It's in bad terms etiquette. Of how we witness. Bad etiquette. It's bad etiquette. A bad witness to Jesus, which we're so desperate to be. You know, everyone would say, I want to be, I want to show Jesus' love. And then we're like, okay, so let's talk about other religions. No, 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 no. So no. we subtly perpetuate yeah. Islamophobia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so Kevin, uh, he's very passionate about it. And he can speak to this. Like the way that he was a pastor for many years and he sat in so many more uh, church services with, you know, very smart, well informed pastors who will say completely untrue things about other religions, which, by the way, they hear. And we don't at all pay attention to that. It's just the classic paradigm. We talk about them, and we – I've got to talk about it in an exchange I had on Twitter recently with a pretty well-known up-and-coming white evangelical pastor. And uh, he tweeted something to the effect of Buddha said X. I forget exactly what it was. Like Buddha said strive on your own, but Jesus says come to me. Hmm. I choose Jesus. And I thought, okay. I think this is um, short-sighted. I think it's bearing false witness. I'm going to pursue this. I was terrified. And I messaged him and I said, I'm not sure that this framing is helpful because it's a bit convenient to say, well, I read exactly one page of a Wikipedia article on Buddhism and I'm telling you, I'm choosing Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you know how he responded? He actually pointed to Acts 17, where Paul says like a one-line quip about, I see that in many ways you are very religious because you have statues to the unknown God. And he said, well, 
he was quick. He was short in summarizing their perspective. So, I mean, then you're going to have to argue with Acts 17. And I said, I don't think it's fair to collapse a public witness to people of other faiths into one verse. And Paul quoted their thinkers. Paul knew their thinkers. He didn't truncate them. Exactly. Yeah, and it's also convenient how this particular person that you were getting into it with on Twitter compared himself to the Apostle Paul. Hey! <laughs> yeah, there so we, go. we I, love to do that in evangelicalism. Like, we know Paul. We are Paul. I, I am, am Paul. Paul. It's like Walking Dead. I am Negan. You're Negan. Yeah. I'm <laughs> Negan. I'm Paul. You're Paul. You kind of. <laughs> You guys name-dropped Amos earlier, and everybody reads Amos and wants to be Amos. Nobody realizes that they're Amaziah. Everybody kind of loves to think that they would be the thief on the cross who who proclaims Jesus, not the thief on the cross who denies Jesus. Yep. You know? Historically, we tend to be the worst <laughs> in these exchanges, not the best. Mm, no, yeah. no. Friendly, like— I remember this is way long ago when I was church planting with the Southern Baptist Convention. After I graduated from college, I read Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren. This is where I learned a very huge lesson as a Christian. He said, if you think you have a friendly church, you don't. It was something really simple (laughs) along those lines. Like a lot of churches of evangelical persuasion think we're a friendly church. But they have absolutely no consciousness whatsoever of what it's like to walk into that building and to interact with this group of people. Most of the time, they feel ignored. They feel no one here is speaking to me. No one here is concerned about what I'm doing after church or anything of – I mean, perhaps you wouldn't ask every new visitor, you know, tell me exactly what you're doing. But (laughs) I don't know. It's – a lot of evangelicals think I'm very friendly and well-meaning, and that's enough. Don't come down on me. And it's like, no, more is expected from us as witnesses of Christ than being friendly and trying to remain apolitical. Mm -hmm. So much of what Jesus did challenged the political norms of the day. Oh. So much. So much of what he did. And I think people struggle because they create a space for American life that is very exceptionalistic. Like America is so exceptional that – What is happening here is of the utmost importance, Mm -hmm. and it is the model and the lighthouse and the light. It is an exceptional place. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kevin Singer and Chris Stackrick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, which is a website and a podcast based out of North Carolina that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. You can find out more about their work at neighborlyfaith.org. So I'm, I know the visible answer to this question. If I were to say, who are the leaders of evangelicalism, we could name them. But you both are coming at this from a place where you have your, your finger on the pulse of something that may be not visible yet. So if I were to ask you, who are the leaders of evangelicalism for the next stage of evangelicalism, who would I be asking about? Korean Americans, African Americans, multi-ethnic churches. Yeah. If you want, if you want the evangelical gospel in America in 2018, it's uh, minority people. Mm -hmm. No doubt. This will require white evangelical religiosity to give up decision-making power. And that is no small ask. I don't think it will, to be honest, if I can sharpen No, that. keep going. 
I think that white evangelical power is getting diminishing returns. And if it's given up, it will be with a five-year view of the fact that their power won't be anything five years down the road. And they are going to bow to popular interest for the good look of doing the right thing. But I don't know if it will be a goodwill thing. I believe that Christ is working in us, but I think he is working beyond, outside, around, through, with us in this. And it won't just be our goodwill and our sense of what's happening or our core. It will be all of the above. I don't know if we'll give up all the power, but I know that God will take it and he'll give it over and he will keep us intact in the fold and the faith. Why does our power matter? He just doesn't matter to him like that. It's nothing. He'll, he'll move it. He'll move it. And it doesn't really matter why. I just don't, I, I just don't think we will just sort of hand it over. Oh, don't get me wrong. I, I didn't want to insinuate that it would be, it's, uh, yes, it would be very difficult. I, I don't know the structures of evangelicalism or their polity as well as I know some of the mainline traditions, but I know that for some of my, my friends in the Presbyterian Church USA, some of my friends in the United Methodist Church, they see this playing out at a structural level at their general conferences where hmm. structurally the ability of delegates from the two-thirds world to be involved in the decision-making process, they're already circumscribed out and kind of kept out of the equation just by the structure of things. So a participant who comes from a small a small part of America or a small congregation or a small general conference in America i don't know the i don't know the terminology but a participant who comes from America will have a lot more voice than a participant who comes from say Uganda mm-hmm. and yeah. that's a sticking point where already by the structure of it the structure has been skewed white yes and has been skewed english speaking yes and And if that's true in evangelicalism the way that it is in some of the mainline churches, that's going to be something where you're not just going to have to have a change of will, but you're also going to have to have a change of polity. Yes. Yeah. A change of theological frame. Mm. Mm -hmm. White European North American theology is—has a prized place, Mm. a privileged place in American intellectual life. I mean, it's changed a little bit, but by and large, most discussions around religion and spirituality in North America pertain to white or European men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not going to learn much more about Christ that way. I just think yeah. we're I think we're ceilinged a lot. And so what it, what so what happens? We especially for evangelicals, do we develop a new contemporary public theology? No, we just look back at the same 10 white guys because we aren't sure how yeah. to be generative towards and and you know, thank the good Lord for people like James K. A. Smith and others who are developing public speak. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, Chris and I both spent time at Wheaton College studying theology. Had a fabulous experience. I wish I could shout out to every prof we had there. It's not as if they intentionally did not prepare us for public theology. It's just I think there was a veil of of normativity, yeah. by which who the voices that were valued as being legitimate were those of predominantly white. That's common. European, yes. I'm Absolutely. not saying it's. I'm not saying it's uncommon. Yeah, but I studied Vatican II. It was yeah. very much the same. They had a lot of global voices there. Whether they were heard is a bit of a question that needs to be recovered. And but like, it's that was in the '60s. That's a big, you know, woo. Like you guys did that in the '60s. We're doing that today. That's a big distance. Yeah, but a lot I, of progress. I had a conversation with a priest friend of mine about Vatican II, and he said we still haven't implemented fully Vatican I. Mm-hmm. And and one one of the things to be aware of is that Pope Francis is the first pope who has actually 
catechized and came through the priesthood training process completely in a Vatican II church. Hmm. And so you're seeing that now reflected in his approach to the two-thirds world and his right. approach to to the way to global Catholicism in a way that has dethroned some of the the white European centrism that has been operative for millennia. Right. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kevin Singer and Chris Stackrick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, which is a website and a podcast based out of North Carolina that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. You can find out more about their work at neighborlyfaith.org. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Kevin Singer and Chris Stackery. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, an organization based in North Carolina that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. They have a website as well as a podcast at neighborlyfaith.org. That's neighborlyfaith.org. If you look at something like the Pew Research data, Mm -hmm. they have broken out African-American evangelicalism from evangelicalism. That, to me, sent a strong message about the differing demographics, even if they both identify from evangelical traditions, the questions that animate them are very different. But I wonder in the ways in which... So, for example, I I can't remember who wrote it, but I read an an article recently that was passed around by a friend of mine, Tish Warren, who's Mm -hmm. an an Anglican priest, Mm So the article was saying, you know, when the New Yorker says, ew, Chick-fil-A is coming to New York, right? it's bad that Christians are coming to New York. The thesis of this response article was, well, when you're saying that, you aren't going against who you think you are because most evangelicals are African-American. And there's a footnote in Stephen Carter's article where he says, the Pew data breaks this out, but really, if you listen to African-Americans talk, they mostly talk like evangelicals. Well, yes, but there's a reason why they're broken out demographically, and that is because the evangelical church historically has had this racial blinder, this Mm -hmm. divide. Mm -hmm. And so you've raised it, so let's talk about it, because I know that this came up at the Wheaton meeting as well. When leaders attempted to speak from the floor in the Wheaton meeting to call out some of the historical racism and and to ask for repentance, I know that two members of the Wheaton meeting left and others said, why are you getting so political? Hmm. So I'm wondering about how evangelicalism could and should deal with that kind of pushback from within its own ranks, the pushback that says we don't have a problem here or that we shouldn't talk about the problem here. You know, a lot of it stems from this narrative that— evangelicals writ large are a persecuted people in America right now. And I think when you add on top of that, not only do we not agree with you theologically, but you're also, you're also wrong historically, socially. I think that triggers the, here I am again, I'm the problem, 
I am the reason that everything's wrong, just like CNN says, mm. just like the media says, just, just like, like the New Yorker just like says, New Yorker public, yeah. just like the mm. public is saying. And I can't take this anymore because I woke up early this morning and I read Amos and I prayed and I, you know, took my daughter to school and I prayed for her and you don't know my day. You don't know who I am yet. I'm supposed to pay for the atrocities of the past. And I'm supposed to, you don't know that I'm a good meaning, well-meaning person. How is it that I am supposed to bear the burden of all this systemic and structural inequality that I'm not even sure is happening because as white religiosity, I mean, the form that it typically takes is strive to pick oneself up by their own bootstraps and make good and right decisions to overcome one's weaknesses and one's setbacks. But it is almost like a new language. And I've noticed this in my own experience, talking with friends who come from a more traditional evangelical background. It is literally like a new language to talk about sin in a way where it is in the air and mm-hmm. not in the individual action. Wow. That is like a new language. And yes, they read scriptures like the one in Colossians where it says that the powers and principalities were nailed to the cross with Christ. But exactly that. They were nailed. And, and mm-hmm. it's more of like – it's more of, it's more of a, a preoccupation with the spiritual powers of evil rather than how power and privilege might be interacting to make this world a place of suffering and a place of great harm for certain groups of people in society. Yeah. If I could add just a little framing of the awesome things I think Kevin is saying, like the people who walked out of this meeting, the people in this meeting, I think they're all good people. And this is the puzzling thing about it is these are good people. How is this happening? Yeah. And it definitely is that in, in positive and negative ways, whatever the evangelical person leader is today, it's been shaped by, you know, on one hand, as Kevin was saying, being critiqued in a certain way for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And not that this is an excuse, but just saying they're sensitive to it. And when they feel it coming, they run. They just say, I'm done with, you know, I don't want to feel any post-colonial guilt. I felt plenty of that, and I got up and I read Amos this morning, and that's not an excuse. That's just how they feel. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something that needs to be reckoned with, and maybe there's a way to deliver the message better. I don't know who's, if that's anyone's responsibility, um, but just that's the way it is for those people who walk out of that meeting. For some reason, they're sensitive. And on the other hand, their experience as, say, a white middle-class or upper-class evangelical is they do have this false sense of you just got to work harder. Just got to do better. Uh, you don't need historical consciousness. You just need a little bit of a little bit of grit, and everything's going to go well. Mm-hmm. The past has little to bear upon the future. That's our tradition. The past doesn't bear much upon our tradition in our minds. There's nothing you know, a quiet we, time can't fix. There's no evangelical tradition for evangelicals, even though there's a tradition. We ignore that there's a tradition. So when someone tries to say we're going to look at the past and see how it bears upon the present, we say why. The presence were here. Let's just go Yet. forwards. Let's go forward. Yet Catholics and Muslims must continue to pay for what's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's true. That is, yeah. That's where we, there's these invisible hypocrisies. And that's things that I think people, and millennials especially, being more engaged, more dialogical, we're, we're starting to realize like, ooh, there's these blind spots. And I'm seeing it in our leaders and I'm seeing it being critiqued and I'm seeing it in myself. And again, we can't just wait for like millennials to get older. That's not okay. But again, those blind spots do exist. And it explains, not excuses, I think, what we're seeing. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kevin Singer and Chris Stackrick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, which is a website and a podcast based out of North Carolina that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. You can find out more about their work at neighborlyfaith.org. A moment ago, Chris, you talked about the need for risk, and I wonder if you both would reflect on the role that you see risk playing in 21st century evangelicalism. What is at risk and what should be put at risk? I think I'll add a little pre-comment and then let Kevin take it, but I think evangelicals, if you are in ministry as an evangelical, you feel a sense of risk because we all know your church can disappear overnight and your job can disappear overnight and your ministry can disappear overnight. And therefore, risk is a fearful... You don't feel the capacity often to take a risk, which is not at all just, but that is the felt sense, I think, often, that Catholics may not share because your church, you know, your that post you may sit in might be 100 years old, 200 years old, 1,000 years old, in a sense. You, you, you feel there's a sense of continuance that's beyond you. But a lot of pastors wake up and say, I created this church from, you know, a good idea, a lot of prayer and, you know, grit. And so when they look at the future, they say, I'm betting it all. Um, I really got to bet it all. Everything I built. Because uh, Mark Driscoll, if you remember, he pastored a church of 10,000. It's a church of zero now. That's a five-year change. That's a big curve. Um, there's a lot of churches that are like this. In Chicagoland, we've had a lot of shakeup in evangelical churches, a lot of breakup. And so people, when they hear risk, they don't have risk capacity emotionally, even though that may not be just or right or even true. That's the felt sense, I think. And Kevin, let's talk about now the future or what should be done. That was literally the most intriguing thing I've ever heard. uh, (laughs) That was awesome. Okay, so the first thing that came to mind of what needs to be risked is we need to risk sitting in a place of we are very wrong. I think that takes risk. And where I've seen this uh, manifest mostly is we have been prioritized in many civic, public, governmental spaces such that norms bend to us. Norms bend to evangelical Protestant Christianity. And I think there's going to be listeners who are going to say, no, my entire experience is one of victimization. Like I am I'm always on the outside. I'm always being bullied by the liberal establishment. But the question I always pose is think about all of the symbolism, all of the normativity, all of the expectation that there will be orthodox Christian elements in the things you see, in the interactions you have, in – the imagery, perhaps even in the skyline, in the practices, the holidays, the festivals, and ask yourself, what if a Muslim community tried to incorporate even 5%? What do you think the reaction would be if they were given 5% of the space, 5% of the real estate, 5% of the power, 5% of the representation? What do you think the reaction would be? And it's obvious it would be one of – it would be extremely negative. It would be extreme. People would be afraid. People would be asking, is this a takeover? Be it evangelical Protestant forms of Christianity, it's simply expected. 
It's simply something that, yeah, there might be a couple of trolls here and there, but by and large, people are, and again, I've heard people say, well, it depends on where you are in America. I don't, I do not agree with that. Mm. I've heard, and I've seen mm. this on Twitter, I've engaged some uh, white evangelical leaders on this, and they say, well, you haven't been to the Northeast. And it's like, hmm. Still not sure I agree with that. I think that historical white historical Christianity is a very powerful thing that is knit very much into the fabric of our entire country. And if you don't believe it's true, ask someone of another faith uh, or religious tradition who lives in the area that you don't think has Christian normativity. I think you'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that we would need to – we would need to risk is that we might need to feel on the outside. We would need to feel like we are the person in the room who is speaking the different social or cultural language. I think we're so used to being at the center that we look at walking into a room with a lot of people who aren't like us as a, as a serious risk when for a lot of people, that's just their normal day-to-day experience. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kevin Singer and Chris Stackerick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, which is a website and a podcast based out of North Carolina that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. You can find out more about their work at neighborlyfaith.org. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Common Wheel for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Common Wheel podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwheelmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guests today are Kevin Singer and Chris Stackerick. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, an organization based in North Carolina that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. They have a website as well as a podcast at neighborlyfaith.org. That's neighborlyfaith.org. I once, when I was teaching this stuff, I once characterized to try and explain in a way that they could grasp the fervor of the evangelical mindset. And I said, okay, imagine that a building is on fire Hmm. and you have people that you love in that building. You are not going to go into that building and have a long theological debate. You are going to say, you need to get out of here now. You need to come with me now. There's not time to debate. If what's motivating the evangelical fervor is the notion that there is an immediate danger that people need to be saved from, Mm -hmm. and the immediate danger is hellfire or eternal separation from God or what have you, Mm -hmm. 
And that was what drove, you know, a lot of times that's the most charitable way that I've been able to understand the evangelicals that I've encountered. So the guy that got up in my face and started saying, how can you believe this and this? Don't you know that the Bible says this and this? Mm -hmm. You know, when he found out that I was Catholic, I was trying to understand that in a way of saying he really cares about the state of my soul. Yeah. And even though I find this incredibly offensive and he's not letting me get a word in edgewise, I want to be <laughs> as charitable as possible in understanding the motivation that he's coming from because he yeah. believes yeah. that if he doesn't get me now and I'm hit by that. a truck crossing the street, yeah. he has failed in his obligation to his Lord and Master. Yeah. I get that. Okay. But so to someone who is animated by that kind of locus, who mm-hmm. has that kind of worldview— you then come, Chris, and you say, we're going to unsharpen the stick and we're going to be more gentle in our in our approach. I can imagine my hypothetical, sometimes not so hypothetical, evangelical interlocutor saying to me, you misunderstand the problem, Chris. You misunderstand mm-hmm. the urgency of the moment, mm-hmm. Chris. You are not living by the mandate that should be underneath all evangelical proselytization, Chris. How would mm-hmm. you respond? I think I would respond with a point that I think they would agree with, which is that many mature, maybe lots of elderly evangelicals that I've spoken to will often nuance their evangelistic fervor with a sense of earned wisdom around their experience through a long life of being more or less fervorous through different seasons and seeing ways in which God works. And they often have said to me, you know, when I'm in my 20s, I've, I've had someone tell me, in my 20s, you know, we went out and we were missionaries. In my 30s, we went and we did, you know, more medical things because we started to realize, like, the gospel comes slowly and God works in mysterious ways. And, and by the time the life's over, oftentimes I think people who have been paying lots of attention will say, God does not work that way all the time. You know, sometimes there are people out there in the street that are waiting for someone to come and give them a radical piece of news. You know, let's go get them. Go get them. Great. Sure. You know, God wants to work there. Let's go cooperate. But then again, most people don't work that way. And so what I would say about the stick is that there is that same sense of the the building is burning down. But let's understand the people in it better. Let's understand who we're rescuing. Are they even going to grab hold of you? Is you know, it might sound crass, but really, will they? What's the point? Like let's think more carefully. Let's bring in wisdom of ages. Let's create a tradition that is you know, attentive to anthropology, attentive to how the mind and heart works, and attentive to our ancestors, who I think oftentimes will say, like, the turn and burn didn't seem to do what we thought it would do. And so, you know, in my workplace, in my hospital that I worked in, I had a witness of love, and I had a lot of people. In the right moment, I was able to share because I waited for that moment, because I built a friendship, because I showed up to their religious services, and I showed up for their, you know, when their family member died, and they said, this is how God worked. And that just becomes obvious to people. And to me, that's how we de-sharpen the stick, is by integrating that obvious wisdom. So after kind of doing this work in kind of less formal and now in more formal ways, I'm going to ask two questions. The first is, what is it that continues to frustrate you? And then I'm going to ask you, what is it that continues to give you hope? What frustrates us? Frustrations? Uh, We wish we had more support from our own tribe. Um, you know, we wish we had more of their support. We wish we had 
more opportunities to write about what we're doing. We wish we had more opportunities to speak in front of bigger crowds about what we're doing. We're not complaining as much. We're just saying that we're kind of, we're waiting. Like we're waiting on the Lord to give us the opportunities that we need for this to scale if I could use a term. But at the same time, we've had some evangelicals in our lives be extremely generous, supportive, and encouraging. And so we're, we're trying to be even-handed. But yes, of course, we'd love to have a table at Gospel Coalition. You know, we'd love to have a breakout mm-hmm. session at Urbana. We'd love to have these opportunities, but we recognize that we need to gain evangelicals' trust, something that takes time. I mean, people might think already on this podcast, these guys claim to be evangelicals, but what it means to be evangelical is not to touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole, and we're saying no. No. <laughs> we're pushing against that. I would say if I could go to hope, I think we're hopeful because – This might be cliche. I don't care if it is, but I'm hopeful because I know this is a calling on my life from Christ. And the reason I know that is because I've tried to step away from this. And I can't. I can't step away. My heart, my mind, I'm like Jeremiah, something in my bones. I can't step away. I feel that despite the fact that, yeah, I might never be able to be this level up here in the evangelical church because I have, I have labeled myself now as a fringer. Mm -hmm. Like I'm willing to give it up. I'm willing because I can't imagine. I heard it. I heard a pastor of mine once say like, your calling is what you couldn't imagine yourself not doing. And then this is that thing for me. I couldn't imagine myself not doing this. And so that's what gives me hope is that the Lord is going to work. Anything you wish to add, Chris? Yeah. Similarly, when Kevin and I look at evangelicals today, especially young people like us, we feel very hopeful that this can change. Uh, We feel we're not laboring in vain. Um, We are part of a movement that can turn on a dime and has turned quickly on a dime around certain things in the past. And we think in the future, we feel extremely hopeful about this changing. And we're really happy to be a part of it. We may be a footnote to the people down the road that actually changed this. But for now, for us, we know this is going to change. We're just Really happy to be a part yes. of being at the front end of pushing it, taking the football maybe a yard down the field. Maybe we'll have the joy of taking it the whole way and seeing this change. But we know it will. We're confident. We believe that God is working in our church, and we believe in the well-meaning fervor and Christ, like love of Christ of the people that we grew up with and that we know in evangelical churches. That will lead them to the right place. Yeah. It's just a matter of tweaking and information. We really believe that. Chris Stackerick and Kevin Singer, Yeah, thank you for being here on the show. Thank you. It's been this lovely is... to talk to you. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Chris Stackerick and Kevin Singer. They're the co-founders of Neighborly Faith, a North Carolina organization that works to help evangelicals build relationships with people of other faiths. They've recently launched a fellowship program on various campuses to help evangelical college students combat Islamophobia in their communities. You can find out more about their work and listen to their podcast at their website, neighborlyfaith.org. That's neighborlyfaith.org. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijev. 
Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.